Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Wonder if you should get tested for colorectal cancer? Well, it's the second leading cancer killer in the U.S., so if you're 50 or older, it's time. Screening helps find precancerous polyps so they can be removed. Remove the polyp, prevent the cancer. Did you know there's more than one screening test? Talk to your doctor to find the one that's right for you. No more excuses, because colorectal cancer screening really does save lives. A message from HHS and CDC's Screen for Life campaign. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to the second half of Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. I'm going to try to get on TikTok, I think. I'm not there yet. Give me a minute. I, I, I'm going to think about that. But um, for those other platforms, please follow because I do give a lot of giveaways. Also, you can check us out on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and uh, iTunes, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. This morning, wow, oh, my God. I wish I had, like, a couple days to talk to this dude. He's a poet, an essayist, a cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. His poetry uh, has been published in Muzzle, Vinyl, Pen America, and various other journals. His essays and music criticism have been published in The Fader, Pitchfork, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. His first full-length poetry collection, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, was released in June 2016 from Button Poetry. Um, This morning, we're going to be talking about his book, A Little Devil in America, uh, that was uh, put out with Random House. Uh, he is a graduate of Beechcraft High School. I believe he is on the line now. Let's see. Yep. Hanif, Hi. This is you. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm good. This is Hanif Abdurraqib. Am, am I saying your last name correctly? You are. Thank you. Very good, very good. Thank you so much for waking up. Um, as I told my other guests, I know a lot of people like to sleep late on Saturdays, so thank you for for getting out of the bed and coming here. Wow, your book, like I just said, I need a couple days to talk to you. Like, (laughs) this this is not enough time, you know what I'm saying? It's just not enough time. Um, But let's start off with something I found out about you. Very interesting. You are a baker. What's with the baking? Um, I read somewhere you were baking peanut butter, bundt cake, and Talk to me about this for a second. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I, I haven't baked in a while. It's been uh, since maybe January because uh, I got so busy. But, yeah, I mean, I um, I didn't really know how to bake or much about baking before the pandemic started. And then when the pandemic started, I, I think I kind of just needed to busy my hands with something that I was uncertain about. Um, I kind of wanted to, you know, it was an uncertain time, and I found myself wanting to embrace uncertainty in my own life and so baking for me was as uncertain as a cut because I didn't know what I was doing um <laughs> and then I kind, of find, I kind of found my way into it you know it's a it's a, a a way to occupy the mind a way to occupy the brain and um 
you know, I, I felt kind of that piece uh, baking, and it's been a good practice for me. I mean, I had to stop in January mostly because the book promotion cycle ramped up, and I didn't have the same time I did uh, before. But um, you know, it was it was a uh, it was really great to to enter that world. Your book has um, a lot of wonderful information about uh, stars, uh, performers that people may not be aware of. Uh, one of them that you speak about is Josephine Baker, and I understand she even um, affected the title of your book. Can you tell the audience the connection between Josephine Baker and the title of your book? Yeah, the title of the book comes from Josephine Baker's speech at the March on Washington, uh, which I think, you know, that part of her history is a little bit under appreciated, you know, the March on Washington, you know, I don't think people know that a woman spoke at it and that Josephine Baker was that woman. And, um, you know, her speech is not very long, but it's funny and it's um, wonderful and joyful. And also there's like rage and, you know, it's just a, it's such a great testament to the fullness of Josephine Baker's life and career. Um, And so, you know, I really wanted to, include that how about the picture on the cover Are there are people dancing why did you choose it it's in black and white tell us about the reasoning behind the cover of the book yeah the cover is uh willem a rickard and leon james in 1943 i believe uh caught in the throes of doing a lindy hop aerial and i wanted to capture um you know a moment of of black people in, in, in a moment of joy, achieving something that they didn't believe was possible. And so um, that was almost, uh, that was an easy choice for me. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that photo, and I love, you know, I, I love the story behind it. I mean, it was taken kind of uh, in the midst of them trying to pull something off a bunch of times, and they finally did it. And, um, you know, for me, it's a, uh, it's not only a great photo, but it's a great testament to uh, uh, resilience. Yeah, you talk about Don Cornelius and Soul Train. Oh, my God, I love Soul Train. I, I like, had this dream that one day somehow I was going to go be on Soul Train, you know. <laughs> um, do you remember the first time you saw Soul Train, and, and what, what, how did you feel when you were watching it? Yeah, so I grew up in, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, where I live now. And that meant that if you didn't, even if you didn't have cable, you still got WGN, which was the network out of Chicago. And on Sunday mornings, WGN would show Soul Train reruns, usually from the 80s and late 70s. And so I just remember watching those. And, um, you know, it's, um, Soul Train is such a transformative and transportative viewing experience and so watching that in the early 90s and mid-90s still made me feel like I was, it made me feel transported, you know, back to, back to the 80s and the 70s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You do write about you trying to do the, the moonwalk um, in the mosque. Do you want to tell the audience about that uh, little episode? Oh, yeah, I, I, like, fell down some steps trying to dance. Uh, you know, floors are slippery, you know? Uh, <laughs> and I think that... I think it's one of those things, you know, where um, you feel like you're you're slicker than you are, or you're smoother than you are, but gravity wins out. That's uh, mm-hmm. you know, it happens. That is how it, it goes sometimes. To the best of us. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, when you're on the dance floor, um, you know, I think dancing, it can be a spiritual uh, situation, you know, whether it's hip hop or, or the Lindy hop, there, there is this um, spirituality to dancing and, you know, African-Americans, you know, supposedly we have um, the rights to it. You know what I mean? We're supposedly the best ones. Um, but that's not always the case. And that, I think sometimes uh, white America tries to force us to live up to that, that um, mm-hmm. view. And you bring that up with Whitney Houston because you say Whitney Houston can't dance. Tell the audience about, a little bit about that um, section there when you were talking about Whitney Houston can't really dance. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's from talking about her 1988 Grammy performance when she had to perform I Want to Dance with Somebody to open the show, and the performance was a little clumsy, um, you know, a little uh, a little awkward. But at mm-hmm. the end, you know, I, I try to think about, like, defining what it is to not be able to dance, quote-unquote. Because at the end of that performance, Whitney Houston is certainly dancing well, but she's dancing well with the understanding that she no longer cares if she's dancing well. And as someone who, you know, myself is only an okay dancer, I think I do my best dancing when I'm unconcerned about the gaze of everyone else, you know? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a moment of that at the end of Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody uh, performance that that I think is really exciting to me. Yeah, I think when you're not worried, you know, like dance like nobody's watching you is, is the best. Um, you have to yeah, and I know that's like a that's like a corny thing that people always say, but it's uh it's true, you know. I think we do our best no, dancing when uh yeah yeah. So um, you have the book broken up into movements, um, and you have like essays and you have poetry. What do you like writing better? Are you a poet? Are you an essayist? Or are you like torn between the two? Oh, I, I don't even think about it. I mean, I think that. I just most enjoy the pursuit of beautiful language and whatever comes out of it, um, you know, however I can get to it. Um, that's what I'm most excited about. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of where, you know, that's, that's where my head usually is. Um, and I, I don't, I don't really, um, you know, I don't oh, think about genre. Oh, I was going to say, I don't think about genre a, a ton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I uh, love this section, um, Nine Considerations of Black People in Space. I'm, I'm such a nerd. And as a matter of fact, uh, right now I'm rewatching Stargate. Um, and it was so funny because reading your book and then I'm watching Stargate, and I was like, damn, every freaking episode, they only got this one black dude. Like every single planet, place they go to, there are no freaking black people. There are no yeah. Asian people. Yeah. There are no Native American people. It's really white right. people. Do they realize this shit? Like, sorry, you know what I'm saying? And you kind of bring that up in, in, in your book, um, and you talk about uh, Octavia Butler and um, another writer. What's her name? Um, hey, Nalo? There's another African-American um, woman who's a um, – I'm sorry. I'm drawing the blank right now. I'm sorry. What is what? Anyway, he talks about... Oh, I read about LaBelle. You mean in the, in the space chapter, I do write about LaBelle, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's, uh, do you have a favorite sci-fi book? Are, are you a sci-fi? Are you a techie? Are you a Matrix person? Like, what's your deal with the sci-fi in space? I'm probably more of a Star Trek person than anything because I grew up watching The Next Generation. 
because, again, those reruns are always on, you know, and I feel like when you don't have a ton of channels, you know, you just got to float to whatever channels you got. And so, uh, I, you know, I grew up watching Star Trek TNG because it was just on all the time. Those reruns mm-hmm. are on. And so, if anything, I'm probably a, a Trekkie, but specifically a, a, a next-generation person. Now, when you watched it um, as an adult, do you what's your perception now? Do you realize, wow, there's not a lot of black people? Or what is your focus now? I mean, I think I realized it then, you know, but I didn't think through it in any kind of way. But I'm sure I realized it then. I mean, the thing about space, right, is that the, the, all these futuristic movies that get made still, for some reason, uh, don't really include... Um, you know, <laughs> even space diversity, so to speak. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I didn't think about it like that then, but I'm sure it was something that, that I recognized. I mean, I grew up in a house where my, my parents were quick to point out these kind of inequities. And so um, it was kind of something, these things were kind of at the forefront of my mind at times. Your other uh, movement is uh, talking about um the Prestige. I love that movie. I've seen that movie like I don't know how many times over and over again. I'm still sucked mm-hmm. into it. And and you have this movement, you know, about suspending um, disbelief. Can you talk to audience a little bit about that section and and what you were trying to get across? Yeah, um, just the, trying to get people to think about what's required of all of us to um, consume the art and brilliance of a, of a person but not have love for a people. You know, that's a, that's a type of suspension of disbelief that I think uh, one that makes me weary, but, but one that I think uh, is worth questioning. I didn't know about this three billboards thing. You bring this up, the movie and this racist cop oh, yeah. scene. I can't believe, like, you said nobody, like, said anything about that. I, I just was like, when I'm reading the whole description, t- tell the audience. I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm actually getting a little upset. As I'm <laughs> remembering. Tell the audience oh, about there's, there's just a scene. Yeah, joke restaurant. I don't know what the language is requirement, so I'll just say the N word. Uh, there's the joke, uh, a quote unquote joke, a scene where the joke rests on two white people talking about cops torturing black people and using the N word. And the way it's written, I think it's supposed to be humorous, but, like, I, you know, a black person in theater, I didn't find it funny. And I couldn't figure out why there were people in the theater laughing. And it was a, a moment for me, um, the moment for me where I realized uh, that if I were to ask people, like, why are you laughing at this, they wouldn't really be able to articulate that back to me, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I I would too, definitely. I love about your book that you bring up a lot of women. Um, I'm so happy about that. Um, in particular, this woman, Ellen Armstrong, I had no idea who she was. Mm-hmm. Can you tell the audience about her a little bit? Yeah. So Ellen Armstrong, I found out about, gosh, she's so fascinating. And there isn't a lot of, you know, she's not, there's not much about Ellen Armstrong in the historical record, which bothered me because she was the first black woman magician to headline her own show she performed largely to black audiences, poor black audiences. Um, she performed miracles in churches and barns. Um, and I, I, I was so impressed by her and her story, and it was heartbreaking to me that I couldn't find out much about her. Um, 
and so I wanted to write something in, in praise of her work and how her work kind of resonated with me. But Ellen Armstrong, you know, part of this book was about searching for stories that I hadn't heard before and, and wasn't familiar with and, and asking myself the question of why I'm not familiar with them, why I wasn't, why these stories weren't shared with me. Mhm, mhm. But you know, I'm just like I said about women. You bring up so many women uh, in the book um, mm-hmm. that a lot of times, as a woman reading certain things, I read a lot of books, and you know, and it's written by men. They're not bringing up women, and they, and, and it's not like a purposeful, evil, you know, malicious thing. It, it's just like they're 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 writing about their lives and what's important to them. Um, so I'm happy though that I feel you were purposeful in picking women and putting them in, in the book. Um, and, and talking about women, yeah. let's talk about – go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I will say that, you know, women are important to me in in my life uh, and my – not just my life as, like, a consumer of popular culture or anything like that, but my life as a, you know, as a fully formed or at least, well, partially formed mm-hmm. adult. Uh, <laughs> not fully formed yet, probably. But okay. as a trying, as a as an adult trying to be fully formed. Mhm, mhm. You walked out on the um, Green Book movie. Yeah, I Tell didn't like it. About what what happened there with your friends and why you walked out? I mean, part, so I will say that part of that is my fault and failure. I, I'm someone who doesn't really read a lot about movies before I go to see them, which uh, I probably got to get in the habit of that. But um. <laughs> So I, you know, I, I thought I was getting a different movie about Don Shirley. I really hadn't read anything. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I, I just thought I was getting a movie. I'm someone who went into that movie. I have a fascination with Don Shirley. I really like Don Shirley, and I think his life is uh, immensely worth um, honoring. And mm-hmm. so when I got to that movie and saw what it was, saw it as it was unfolding, I was like, oh, this is just not what I thought it was, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. And then I sat through as much of it as I could, and I had to, I had to get out. Mm, mm. Yeah, there's some things that people just you, – you, you'd be surprised. Like, I'm like, I can't sit through this. I remember um, uh, the movie with um, Halle Berry, uh, Monster's Ball. I Monster's Ball, actually, yeah. I actually got up and walked out of the movie myself. Because I, I was in a place where it was like one of these um, – mostly white audience and I was this black woman sitting in this audience and I just, I just couldn't take it. Um, but sometimes that things hit you like that and, and you just have to be like, go with your gut. And it, but it, what's interesting are all the times that we don't get up out of movies. You, you know what I'm saying? All the times that oh, yeah. people are walk, you know, like walking, watching through scenes that are racist or sexist, um, or, or, or homophobic or different things, and we sit through them and laugh with the other mem- members of the audience. Um, I think those are the times and um, that are actually interesting. And I've, I've seen that you talk about that and watching people. I, 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 why did you become a psychologist? Because I feel like you like a people watcher. And you are really noticing human behavior. <laughs> Why didn't you become a psychologist instead of a writer? No, I'm a people watcher, but I'm certainly not a people understander. <laughs> I don't even, I barely even understand myself, you know. Um, some days I don't at all. And so, yeah, but I think I'm fascinated with people 
because I have such a deep connection to the emotional landscape that I'm on, and I'm, I'm always trying to figure out, um, you know, I'm just trying to reaffirm that I'm not alone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love this movement for the anatomy of closeness, chasing blood, and I was reading about the bees and dance moves, and all of a sudden it came to me or it reminded me of watching karate flicks and, like, really awesome karate flicks, uh, like, say, Ip Man or, or, or other things, and there, there being a dance, that it was a dance they were doing. Um, so it was so interesting. I love that section. Can you tell the audience a little bit about this connection you made between fighting and dancing? And um, even you talk about some other things, but just the, the fighting and dancing. Yeah, well, I think there's something, you know, I grew up watching fights, and so, like, real fights in my neighborhood, in my school, but I also grew up watching the, like, the thing that happens before a fight where two people are almost daring each other to make a move, and there's a romantic sway in that where people are close and in each other's faces and moving in a circle. There's something rhythmic about that, uh, something kind of tender that I I really uh, – um, I really admire from afar, and I think there's, yeah, there's a gentleness to it. That's interesting you said that, there's a gentleness to to the fighting. Um, In one of your interviews, you mentioned about because you're a cis male that you get awarded, rewarded, I should say, for for being vulnerable. Um, Why is that the case? Why why is it such a, a people feel an anomaly that a, a cis male can be vulnerable, can be emotional, can talk about, you know, crying or, or fear or different, um, if you will say, feminine things? Um, sometimes people label them. Well, I think people have an obsession with the with these binaries, right? With these binaries around gender, and for me. I mean, I, you know, I did I, I have for a long time. I think I had to unlearn some things, but, um, and I'm still in the process of unlearning some things. But I think for me it starts at to uh, commit to those binaries is harmful for everyone. Like it's harmful for me to believe that I am incapable of really rich and generous vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. Um it's, it does a disservice to me in the fullness of my personhood to treat myself like I cannot reach certain levels of emotion. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm always kind of hoping to reconsider and, con- and continue to reconsider the ways that I have uh, projected gendered insecurities onto myself in years before now. And then try to correct mm-hmm. them as I come across them. So um, let me ask you this. This is nothing to do with poetry per se, but um, if you weren't a poet, what would you be? No, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, when I was young, I wanted to be a baker because I saw how much fun that everyone at the bakery, at my neighborhood bakery was having. Uh, and so... Even though I just did not bake anything until the pandemic, um, but I think you know I, I would want to do something that uh, a dream of mine would always be to work at a record store. I still kind of hold mm. that dream. Uh, Columbus mm. doesn't need me, you know. My city doesn't really need me working in a record store, but 
uh, maybe I'd just be a guy at a record store hanging out. I could see that. I could definitely see that because you write about so much music and, and performers. What was your first job when you were growing up? Do you remember? Oh, I do. My first job was I was a server at Pizza Hut. And I was yeah. 16, maybe, yeah, 16. And Pizza Hut is one of those places where you don't really need servers, you know. Uh, I mean, especially not now, but I think even back then in the early 2000s, it really wasn't a place where you'd need servers. And so I didn't make a lot of money, uh, but I made, like, enough money for gas, which, you know, I had my first car, so I just, like, needed enough money for gas and, like, to go out on one date every now and then if I wanted to. Um, <laughs> What kind and of I got a free personal have? pizza. I had a I had a 1994 Nissan Maxima. It was brown, uh, the hideous color, and the muffler was pretty loud. But I, I due to my pizza job, I got a stereo system, um, and that was louder than the muffler. So I I just instead of getting the muffler fixed, I just got a louder stereo. <laughs> What was the first record you ever bought? Do you remember? Or did you buy CDs? I'm not sure of your age uh, exactly. So I'm not. <laughs> Were you buying CDs or records? I'm, so, I, for the first, so I'm 37, which means that I was kind of, by the time I came into my album buying era, cassettes were kind of on the way out, but they were cheaper because of that, which mm-hmm. is what I could afford. Okay. So I was buying cassettes first and then CDs and now, now records. It's actually record store day to day. So I'm going to hit the record store later today, but, um, yeah, the first cassette that I bought was Mariah Carey's Music Box, um, mm. and I bought it. I bought it in I bought it. It was after it came out because I got it out of out of clearance. Because I think I bought it in ninety five, ninety four, ninety five. Um, but that was the first one. Yeah. What's your favorite book to read? What's a book that you've read maybe more than once or twice or even three times? Uh, Jazz by Toni Morrison. And why is that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I love, you know, Toni Morrison means a great deal to me, but I also think jazz is maybe her great underrated book. There's such a musicality to the language and the way it ends is singular. And I just, and I think it's the read of hers that I find, I don't want to say easiest, but it's the one that I can, I feel like I can get through uh, the calmest, perhaps. What scares you, honey? What What is your fear right now? Um... Uh, a world that is trending more and more towards a cruelty that it will not be able to recover from. What makes you happy right now? Um, well, I get to, you know, every time I come home, my, my dog is excited to see me as though, you know, we've never seen each other before, and I think that's kind of special. <laughs> Oh, my gosh, yes. People with their pets. I, my daughter has a dog, and trust me, um, it took the dog a little second to get used to me, but now the dog is happy to see me as well and jumps up and down. And it's, like, amazing, this, this energy that she has. Like you said, like, she's never seen me before, and it's just, like, it's it really love is an important thing for people to have in their lives. What are you going to be doing next? Yeah. Can you tell us about what's coming next for you in terms of a book or poetry or teaching or What's coming next for you? I'm teaching a semester in the fall at Butler, but in terms of what's next for the summer, resting. You know, I'm trying to recharge. The first five months of the year are really hectic for me, and I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, 
uh, just resting a bit and playing video games and reading and all that. What's your favorite video game? Right now I'm playing NBA 2K, which is a basketball game, and I'm playing it mostly because it's easy and doesn't require a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of brain power. Wow. Well, honey, honey, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. Um, wow, like I said, I really need a couple of days. We, we didn't even scratch the surface, people, of all the – topics and issues that he he brings up in this book i'm going to be giving away some copies of your book um and, and where can people find you um online uh, on twitter and different things what's what's the name you yeah my twitter and instagram are the same it's uh nice muhammad and it's, it's n-i-f-m-u-h-a-m-m-a-d and that's both twitter and instagram and you also have a website um your, your website um, oh yeah is your name yeah it's just my last name right yeah, abdirectdeep.com. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, everybody, check that out. And also um, check me out on Twitter at Joy Keys, uh, Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, Graham, for a chance to win a copy of uh, Hanif's book, A Little Devil in America. Thank you, Hanif, so much for coming on. I can't wait till your next book. I know you want to take a rest, but please, please start <laughs> writing a little bit of maybe small bit. <laughs> I will. I will. Thank you for taking the time. It was a joy to talk to you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Just got off the phone with poet, essayist, cultural critic, Hanif Abdul-Rakib. I'm going to be giving away some copies of his book, A Little Devil in America. So, again, you want to follow me on the social media. And um, next week I have a rescheduled uh, show with poet Stacey Ann Chen, um, so you want to check that out. That's on the 19th, uh, next Saturday. Uh, but always keep track on the social media. You never know who I might be interviewing um, next. Um, thank you, thank you, and thank you for listening to the show. Again, you can check it out on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, iTunes, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. You guys have a wonderful weekend, and I'll talk to you next week. Every year, millions of Americans are exposed to a contagious virus. What is this virus? It's stigma. Stigma promotes an environment of shame, fear, and silence, which prevents millions of people from seeking help. But there's good news. The National Alliance on Mental Illness believes stigma towards mental illness is 100% curable. So do yourself and everyone a favor. Go to curestigma.org and get tested for stigma. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.